before we get started, I just want to make a reminder to everybody that the information uh, discussed today is not to be interpreted or construed as investment advice. Everyone's financial situation, goals, and objectives are different. Please consult investment advice. The dirty secret is that no one's ever going to get paid back. People have the shortest memories when it comes to investment. We just got to get Keith into Bitcoin. Hey, there's a bubble. Welcome back to the Looney Hour, episode 15. We're going to have a barn burner here today. As always, joined with the three amigos. We got uh, the Tom Brady of Macro gearing up for another Super Bowl win. Richard Diaz with Acorn Macro Consulting. And of course, we've got uh, everyone's favorite boomer, Keith Dicker with Ice Cap Asset Management, uh, rolling with the punches here. Welcome back to the show, gentlemen. Um, as always, uh, this is my one request of all our faithful listeners here. As we grow this uh, community, all we ask is that you share this episode with at least one friend. That's all we ask in return. Um, but uh, but let's dive into that because I think we've got a extremely busy week. There's a good lots to touch on. Um, but I kind of want to start it off on the housing front. So we had the uh, data coming out from Korea, the Canadian Real Estate Association. So coming up with the December numbers, we had uh, national home prices up 26% on a year-over-year basis in December. Of course, that's the all-time record high uh, price growth that we've ever seen. Um, and at, on a national basis right now, uh, all-time record low inventory. So we finished the year with record home sales, record low inventory to start the year. And of course, home prices up 26%. Um, and that, that home price uh, inflation re- is really widespread. It is across all the major cities. Uh, you know, Toronto up 31%. Victoria, 24%, Montreal, 23%, Vancouver, 17%, Ottawa, 16%, Winnipeg, 12%, Calgary, 10%. So um, most sort of major cities in Canada here are experiencing 10 plus percent inflation. Um, so, you know, we got, I got some stories, but, you know, I, Rich, I don't know if you have any uh, initial gut reaction to that, but. I'm sure it's totally fine and indicative of a very healthy economy. Uh, no, it's uh, obviously that's sarcasm. I think it's it's dangerous. Who knows when it'll end? You're going to tell us where it ends. But um, I think the shelter component, which we're going to touch on a little bit later, is it crucial to that housing price story? I don't want to. I don't want to gazump us. But um, no, Keith, what do you have your views on housing? Other than you, you must be feeling really rich now. Yeah. Oh, oh okay, am I sad? I damn Halifax. You guys pissed me off. Um, they're like the one, like sort of, I don't even, I want to call you guys a major city, but, uh, they are the one sort of subsection on Korea's website. Like the Halifax real estate board just doesn't like release a benchmark price. So I wasn't able to give out the Halifax reading, uh, but Keith, I don't know if you have any comments on, on what you're seeing in the Halifax housing market. Uh, we know you're sitting on a a large mansion there. So, (laughs) well, first of all, you, you, I think. Before you asked Rich to comment, you said you have stories on the real estate market, which really caught my attention because I love stories. So I do, I do want to hear one or two of these stories. Uh, you know, I can't add any. I mean, Halifax, like any other market right now, the 
you know, the, the inventory is extremely tight. The moment something comes on the market, there are multiple people bidding on it. And if you're not familiar with Halifax, um, a, a portion of the city is a peninsula. So there's, you know, there's no more places to build. All you can do is, you know, create condo buildings. There's lots of that is happening. So, you know, it's, it is one of those markets where everything is, you know, being driven higher and higher by lower rates, uh, especially. But, what, Steve, though, why don't you share with us one of these stories that you're yeah, I with. mean, yeah, I mean, just just kind of what I'm seeing, like, you know, boots on the ground over the last four to six weeks, like just starting off the year. here. It's, it's honestly, it's been like mind numbing. Um, I go back and I compare this to the bull market we had in housing in 2016, which was kind of influenced predominantly by China's capital outflows, um, you know, making headlines and pushing up global home prices. What I'm seeing right now is that a pace that far exceeds 2016, like the amount of euphoria, the price growth. So for example, I had a client, she was texting me yesterday and she goes, Oh, can you look into the sale in this, in my townhouse complex? I, you know, I want to, I heard that, you know, they hit this price. So the backstory is in 2015, she lives in an area called in Surrey. She lives in a cookie cutter townhouse complex. Um, you know, they're all, they're all the same. Surrey is very much a blue collar working class. It's not a high income area. So she bought her townhouse with me in 2015. She paid 375, uh, three bedroom townhouse cookie cutter. When she bought it, it was two years old. Fast forward today. What's that complex now? Seven, eight years old. So identical units as hers were selling for $800,000 in October which is, that's huge, right? $800,000 in October. She's like, oh, I'm, she's, you know, like, wow, this is crazy. And her neighbor just sold this week for a million 50. The same units were going for $800,000 in October. So basically if you run the math on that, it's a 25% price increase in three months, three and a half months. So that's kind of what's happening like locally here in the sort of Vancouver housing market. And which kind of leads me to, I think you have every excuse right now in the books that we should be looking at raising interest rates. Um, this is let's talk about inflation first. Control. Yeah, yeah, Rich. I mean, take it away. I'll let you, uh, Tom Brady, us here. <laughs> oh God, it does not feel comfortable. But my girlfriend is just as hot. Anyway, so. Um, the um so yeah so inflation came out let's just i'm going to just go over a little a couple of these numbers here i know it's a bit boring but the numbers provide some context so the headline number was 4.8 percent core number was 3.5 now before we get into this i want to know these are the headline numbers i think um a lot of people including my yours truly my mother but she would definitely say what only five percent um so these are just the headline figures so i don't want people to come and tell me like oh you know this should be it's higher it's higher yes we all know it's higher but you know what are we going to do it's hard to calculate inflation and on some, we have to start from a, some kind of um we need some you know some sort of fundamental starting point and then from there we can argue about it so but anyway so just kicking off here so inflation was 4.8 percent as expected so it's been a while actually since the you know the aggregate economist expectations finally nailed it on the head it happened last the last release in the US as well. So after being sort of playing catch up for months and months, we've seen it finally, um, economists finally catch up to what's going on. Uh, crucially here, um, goods, which is you can imagine are obviously much more susceptible to supply chain issues are up there near 6.8%. 
and services, which we'll get into a little bit later, is now starting to really ratchet up. And so these are all these numbers are either 10 or 20 or 15, in some cases, 30 year highs. Um, I know for headline inflation, it's 50 year highs. So there's, there's some, you know, there's some obviously components. I'm not going to go into them, but you can probably figure them out yourselves like clothing, recreation, tobacco. I'm not sure who still smokes tobacco, but you know, and there's food and whatever. And one of the big ones, obviously, that's very important is food. And that was like 5%. Again, that's the official number. I, I think it's much, much higher, but um, just take a look at your meat prices. But anyways, and then for me, the most important component of the whole thing is the shelter component. Now the shelter um, includes things like um, the cost of operating your home, as well as like rent components, et cetera, et cetera. And obviously this is tied somewhat to the prices of housing. And this is now up to 5.4%. Now, why is that so important? Number one, it took a huge, huge leg up in the last month. And the second thing is that it's almost 40% of your basket. So this idea that, you know, we're going to say the T word transitory, um, the idea that you, you have all these other items kind of roll off as the supply chain stuff unblocks and um, you, that will happen. But the key, one of the key contributors of inflation to core and headline is the shelter component. And it's not clear at all that that's going to sort of kind of slow down. And so that's why I think it's going to put a floor under inflation going forward. So, yeah, are we finally going to like probably pop off those those super highs? Yeah, sure. But I think for me going forward um, and for my clients, I think that's the key, key um, number that I'm looking at. It's true here. It's true in the U.S. It's true um, in the U.K. It's not true in the euro area because they calculate inflation a bit differently. But um, and then the final thing I think is really interesting is to, number one is to remind everybody that the BOC calculates their own um, version of core, which is a measure meant to um, eliminate transitory specific fluctuations in CPI. That's a direct quote. And all of three, which are based on a factor model, I have no idea what that means, based on a median, um, median weighted mean, a trimmed mean. So basically trying to account for um, the big dislocations, all of those are now at 10, 20, and 30-year highs. Um, and so it's amazing how they just effectively ignored their own analysis with respect to the transitory debate. And, um, and it's just, and listen, we're all feeling it. That's the really sad part, I think. It, it's going to affect working class people more um, than people who are like Keith sitting in his mansion, you know, eating caviar and counting his, his gold coins. But um, we're all in for it. You know, the core producer price just to end, end it on this point, which is the core producer prices index, which is, you know, X out or energy and X out commodity prices that are directly tied to some supply and chain stuff tends to lead and predict core inflation. And, you know, this relationship doesn't always work. You know, if you follow me on Twitter, you've definitely seen me post this chart before and I'll share with you guys again. But I mean, let's just say it's even half wrong. We're still going to hit probably five or six, five percent, let's say, on the core inflation number. And that's going to hurt a lot of people. So I don't know, um, Keith, if you want to add anything or maybe point out stuff that I missed there. Yeah, I don't, I don't think you missed anything. Uh, so I mean, so two things. One will will lead into a, a good conversation next. Um, so first of all, I feel obviously the central banks are behind the ball. So we'll talk about what actions they may or may not be taking coming up. But also, uh, I just want to introduce the concept as well as that. I think 
it's not a non-zero probability. I think the probability is a lot higher than people are expecting that you're going to start to see muted inflation numbers as, as the year goes on, especially in the second half. And uh, again, these numbers are always lagging. They're lagging. They're lagging. They're not forward-looking. Um, but anyway, that, that's something to think about. So uh, I think next thing coming up, it will be central banks. We have the Bank of Canada coming up next week. Same with the Fed as well. So, uh, Steve, what, what are your friends yeah. at the Bank of Canada thinking? What are they going to well, do? Well, yeah, no, I just wanted to touch on that just for, uh, you know, some of our sort of, because, you know, I, we like to engage with a lot of our loony hour listeners, and I know some are trying to sort of keep up with our macro conversation. So, you know, I just want to clarify something um, or simplify something. So, as, as Rich mentioned, you've got inflation at 4.8% on a year-over-year basis, uh, wage growth, uh, I believe, was 2.7%, right? So if you really think about this, I mean, obviously, you know, for the most part, uh, it's a squeeze uh, on Canadians unless that wage growth continues to push higher, which that's, that's certainly Rich's uh, research is showing. But, you know, if you think about this even further, like who does this impact the most, right? I mean, okay, so if you have, inflation up 4.8 and, and wages up to seven. The only way to sort of buffer that has been through like, okay, if you own a home, as we've just seen, you know, up 26% nationally, that's been sort of at least a buffer. Now, if you, the people that are ultimately suffering the most is again, it's the lower to middle class that don't really have any assets. They might, they might be renting a home, uh, you know, for example, trying to save up for a down payment. And that down payment has basically been you know, eviscerated uh, over the last uh, 12 months or so. So just wanted to clarify that um, because it does bring us now into our conversation here about the Bank of Canada, because, you know, I think the political pressure is rising. I think everybody can see what's happening. Um, you know, food prices. There was, a, there, was a, there was a really good, I think there's a really good historical case that typically speaking, um, it's when food inflation actually starts to push higher that that's when you actually get like that social unrest. Uh, when people are, you know, struggling to put food on the table, that's when they kind of have it. So I think that there's political pressure rising with, with the cost of living, housing prices, food inflation, that we're now seeing aggressive calls for the bank of Canada to raise interest rates. Um, you know, I think when we talked about last, last week, I think we had like, the market was pricing in six or seven hikes. We've had like a chorus now of, of um, banks revised, big Canadian banks revising their forecasts, which I kind of want to get, uh, you know, Keith, uh, your opinion on, of course, and, and Rich. But, um, you know, like the latest one I got sent to me last night was from Scotia Bank, which I kind of made fun of uh, a couple months ago because they were talking about eight rate hikes by the end of 2023. Now they're saying seven rate hikes by the end of 2022. So um, they're, su they're suggesting that the overnight rate will go from 0 0.25 as it is right now to it'll, it'll finish the year at 2%. Now, again, if, if anyone's sort of keeping score at home, You'll remember the last rate height cycle, the Bank of Canada got stomped out at 1.75%. So, 
Um, we're going to get a decision here. Uh, uh, Keith, what is it? January 26th, the Bank of Canada is coming out. And, and Rich, I don't know if you can tell us what the, or maybe Keith, you know, what the current uh, market is pricing and like the expectation. I think it's what, 70% odds they move in January. Yeah. I mean, well, first of all, every good Canadian knows whose birthday is on January 26th. Terry Fox. No, I don't know when. No, the, bo- the boomer had his birthday a couple of weeks ago, by the way. Yeah, so happy belated. Hey, thanks. Uh, Wayne Gretzky, guys. Wayne Gretzky, January 26th. Oh, so if whenever you're boomer, anyone asks me about Canadian trivia, I always just answer Terry Fox. Well, you guys don't realize, but a long time ago, when I was a kid, there was a hockey player named Wayne Gretzky, and uh, it, was, it was cool. It was cool. Tell so, us uh, more, Papa Keith. Tell us more. Well, uh, back then, there was no here internet comes the, or TV. Here comes the story. Here's the story. And I remember uh, <laughs> he was on pace to try to score 50 goals and, you know, 50 games was, was the thing. And uh, so I was a young kid, and I'd go to bed at night, and I'd wake up in the morning, and my dad, he, he would have listened to the radio already to, 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 to hear news. He'd come in, and he'd say, Keith, I said, what? Well, he, he did it. I said, he did what? He said he got five goals against the Buffalo Sabres last night. I said, five goals? That's 50 in 39 games. He said, yeah, that was cool. I'll never forget that. So that was a... Uh... Cool. Anyway, uh, Wayne has a birthday coming up in six days. On the same day as the Bank of Canada. So they released theirs at, uh, I think it's 10 a.m. Eastern, I think it is. And the Fed is out in the afternoon as well. Uh, so Steve, t- to answer your question... Um, so, so right now, there's about a 70, call it a 75% chance of a rate hike next week. So to remind everyone, central banks have eight meetings a year. So for Scotiabank to be correct with their forecast, it means the Bank of Canada will raise rates by 25 basis points or a quarter of a percent every meeting except for one throughout the year. I mean, that, that's, that's the way the numbers work out with it. Um, so, you know, I was, I was uh, chatting with someone yesterday, the day before, I think. They said, you know, what are the odds of a, a Bank of Canada raising rates next week? And I, I didn't see this thing, but I said that, you know, it's probably 75% chance that, that they raise. Um, and and really, that's what the market is pricing in right now. Uh, even without seeing what the market is, is pricing in, and my thoughts on a 75% chance of them doing it, is, as you say, like the, the political and social pressure right now on the Bank of Canada has to be enormous. And, you know, some of these guys have friends and family. So I imagine somebody is you know, whispering to them, hey, you know, you got to do something here. Uh, but it's it's going to create some, some pretty awkward moments coming up because let's just say you, you bought your house last week and, you know, mortgage rates are already going up and sooner or later prices will start to get adjusted and, you know, six months, 12 months down the road that, you know, you know 1.2 was this, you said earlier, Steve, the condo or townhouse in Surrey? Oh, it was a, mi- a million, million fifty. It went from 800 to a million. Okay, 50 million to 50. So let's just say that's price at 9.75, you know, a year from now or 9.50, you know, and the price of food is going up. It, it's it's going to be tough here. But the bottom line right now in, in our world is everyone is on central bank watch. And uh, one of the biggest, central bank watchers in the world is right now is China. So we'll go into that as well. What came out of those guys. Um, but anyway, they're, I, I, I'm expecting them to hike by 25 basis points next week. What, what about you, Rich? What were you expecting from the Bank of Canada? 
I mean, I, so I, you know, we always talk about what should and what is, I mean, I, I obviously agree with you. I think they should, I mean, they should, we've talked about this before. They should have raised ages ago, but I'm going to take the other side on that. And I think that they've demonstrated um, that they have no testicular fortitude. Um, they are unwilling to make the d- tough decision. Um, and I, they, until they prove me wrong, I'm happy to be late to this party. I'm happy to be, I'm in, in six days, if they raise rates, I'll, ha- I'll raise my hand and say I was wrong and I'm sorry. But, you know, we have to remember sort of where we came from. And if you just forgive this mini digression, like first we were told there is no inflation. This was probably, you know, a year and a half ago. Then we were told that there's some inflation. Um, then we were told that the inflation that does exist is transitory. Um, and yes, some of it is transitory, fine. But let's be honest, it's government profligacy. It's massive, massive stimulus that has overwhelmingly contributed to that. And then after we were told that it's almost certainly transitory, they've sort of walked off that ledge because they had to. The Federal Reserve did it for them. And now we're being told again that it's a global phenomenon. I mean, I'm mixing the Bank of Canada's position with the government's position because they've, frankly, they've done it for us. Um, And so this idea that they're going to turn the boat, a very slow moving, frankly, rudderless boat, um, away from the fact that it's transitory and away from the fact that it's global all to the fact that to raising rates when, you know, not long ago that they tell us they're only going to start raising rates in the second quarter of 2022. I find, although the 75% is, you know, three to one against, I think, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to stick with my position and say that they won't do it this, this time around. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll jump in there. I think that, again, I think they should move. I, I and people go, you know, I actually hope they move because like I can, I can tell you like even from like a housing front from like me running my business, like it's too hard to actually do deals right now because the market is just too competitive. Like you take a client around to a house and you get outbid on every house. So like I would actually welcome uh, some rate hikes to cool things off. Uh, Rich, I'll take your side uh, and go no rate hike in January. Just, just, just so the bank account can piss everybody off. Um, (laughs) But um, yeah, I think that uh, I, I need to comment here on, on one thing before you guys look really dumb next week. Um, <laughs> I think usually, usually Rich doesn't laugh at my jokes and Steve does, but I look dumb every week. Keith, Keith I look dumb every week. <laughs> that's, that's what's fun about being in the markets. Every, every uh, day you're proven wrong somewhere. Or another, I so. think you're the smartest looking guy out of three of us here. <laughs> um, so one thing, though, with, with central banks and everything, uh, the market will always move in anticipation of what's going to happen. So, uh, so right now, the, the Bank of Canada, they're behind the curve. So the, the, the yield curve, so to speak, uh, it already is shifting. It, it is rising at certain, especially the five-year. Uh, Steve, I think I shared with you and Rich this morning, the, the Canadian five-year yield. And, and that will drive mortgage rates, of course, coming up. Um, but one of the rate metrics in Canada that maybe a lot of people are not quite aware of is called the Canadian Bankers Acceptance Note. And it's it's a real good, it's not a perfect proxy, but it's a real good proxy for uh, what the three-month Bank of Canada rate is. And, um, you know, I got a good story on, on the backs, but that's another another day. So we call it the backs, by the way, B-A-X, that's the name for it. Um, 
actually, yeah, here's the story on the backs. So a couple of years ago, I was, I was attending a, uh, it was like a, a meeting, one of the Bank of Canada governors was there. And, and at the time, the Bank of Canada, they were the, the last ones left who have yet to turn dovish in terms of saying, yeah, we're going to cut rates. So every other central bank in the world, they've already said, we're cutting rates. And, and these guys are saying, no, we're not. We, we think we're all doing this. So after listening to them present and, and talk and answer questions, um, I immediately ran out and said, boy, these guys are they're so far behind the ball. They just don't understand what's happening and they're going to have to cut. And when they do, you know, watch out. So of course the best way to play in, in the market is always a way to make money, you know, whether up or down. So the BACS contract with the Canadian bankers acceptance note, uh, that's the way to, to play that trade. And uh, we did that and it was, it worked, it worked out quite well. So back to that contract. So right now the bank of Canada is at 0.25%, the overnight rate right now, as of this morning, the uh, interest rate on this contract is showing 1%. Okay, so the, the market is already saying, hey, these guys are going to start raising rates. So if for you two, if, if you guys think, hey, you know, they're not going to raise rates next week, you guys have to go out and you have to sell this contract. By the way, this is not investment advice. You need to you need to speak with your financial advisor, all that stuff. Uh, That's why I'm talking again, to you right now. Yeah, there there are certain ways to, to play this, but right now the markets are definitely saying, uh, "Hey, the Canadians they need they're going to raise rates." So what happens next week if they don't raise rates? All of a sudden, you get mayhem and chaos and you know, confusion taking place. And we haven't even talked about the Fed yet. You guys heard the rumor about the Fed this week? No, tell us. Well, it's a financial rumor, not not the other kind of rumors <laughs> that, that, that tend to come out. Sometimes. Are you talking about Ben Bernanke's daughter again? <laughs> no, I have no idea what you're talking about. Uh, what's what's the rumor, Keith? Uh, so there is some talk going around that the Fed is going to hike by 50 basis points, by half a point. Ooh, so if, that's if juicy. This, yeah, like that would be a, a a real shocker to the system if that happened. But yet it, it does demonstrate those. So, so here in Canada, Scotia Bank, you know, they're trying to, hey, like we, we think the Canadians would be very aggressive with raising rates. Now down in the U.S., you know, other houses are, you know, they're doing the same thing from the U.S. perspective. So if we all of a sudden get the Canadians, again, I, I think they're going to raise rates, um, which won't be that big of a surprise. Uh, a little big, but but not enormous. If the Fed raised rates by by a half of a percent next week, wow, that's going to be a day in the markets, and that's really going to get things moving along. And um, so, just just to add some color to this, because it's then I know I've been talking a bit, but this is important stuff, everyone. This is central bank talk. Um, so we've been talking for a while that. You know, once the once the Americans start to raise rates, you know, it, it, it's our view that's going to create some stress around the world, specifically in the emerging market world. And um, this week at the World Economic Forum in Davos online this year again, I think. Um, so Chinese President uh, Xi Jinping, he took the floor. I don't know what number he was speaking, um, but he was you know, a very prominent speaker, of course. And, uh, you know, he begged the U.S. Federal Reserve not to raise rates. And specifically what he said was, if major economies slam on the brakes and do a U-turn in monetary policies, there's going to be serious negative spillovers. 
present challenges to global economic and financial stability in emerging market countries would bear the brunt of it. So, so again, it, it's just echoing what, again, this is not something that, you know, it's a secret. We're the only ones that know it, but to hear world leaders actually verbalize it and it's out there now for, you know, for everyone to start talking about. And again, to put some more uh, background behind this, everyone else is, you know, raising rates right now that the Chinese cut interest rates this week. So if they cut rates and all of a sudden everyone else is raising rates, again, that's a two four, right? That, that's what's 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 coming up here. Rich, so, you want to rebuttal that? I'd love well, to. no, I so I think Keith's. I, I just want to add a maybe a little bit of flavor and a little bit of color. So a couple of things. Um, so Keith's right on the money in the sense that you know a, a huge huge rate increase would not only um, shake the market. Um, but it would also screw with inflation expect uh, sorry interest rate expectations right so that would and so that it would it would reverberate sort of down the yield curve so to speak um, with respect to China I think this is um, the rate cut that we just saw is is only sort of the second or third or even fourth um, liquidity or monetary policy sort of event that we've seen so uh, you know obviously every, every a lot of people are familiar with the Evergrande. Um, fiasco. I mean, there's all kinds of, um, you know, opaque financial instruments and um, companies in, in China. Evergrande, which is a real estate developer, was just another one in the long list of shenanigans that go on in that beautiful country, really. And um, and in order to sort of react to that, they provided a lot of liquidity. I can't remember how many billions of won it was, but and that was a couple of months ago. And then after that, they they uh, lowered what was what's called a uh, requirement reserve ratio, reserve requirement ratio. Oh, shit, I screwed that up. Anyways, the triple R thing, and it's for different banks of different category and size. So this is, and then they added some more liquidity post that. And now this is so this is either the fourth or the fifth. I can't remember how however many it is, kind of um, move that they're they've done to basically provide liquidity to the system, increase spend um, lending. And just and just to show you sort of the results of this, um, and so this is just the first rate cut of my view of of many, um, and there will be more liquidity, more monetary policy to ease. And you say, well, Rich, why are they doing this now? Um, China had one of the most throughout this whole COVID, you know, BS. China had some of the highest real interest rates in the world. So what's a real interest rate? It's your real in, it's your interest rate adjusted for some kind of inflation number and they didn't spend so canada basically for example canadian bank of canada and ecb and a bunch of other western banks they expanded their balance sheet incredibly um by those same measures you know the, the pboc so people's bank of china actually reduced um the size of their balance sheet so china's had an extremely extremely restrictive monetary policy relative to the rest of the world and they've done so throughout this whole time so only now are they starting to uh, ease up on monetary policy and you're seeing like m2 money supply start to kick up things like the credit impulse ratio starting to kick up. i mean it's technical shit but that's not the point the point is they're easing and everyone else is sort of tightening that's the key things that keith outlined really well and i would say in a way but where i think it's where i disagree maybe with keith is i actually think it's probably good for china that that's actually happening because if, if you look at things like the real effective exchange rate so some kind of trade weighted index of the yuan we're actually like basically all-time highs. And China's an export economy. And even to this day, although they're desperately trying to reorient away from that, they're the world's largest exporter. That's how they, you know, that's how they generate a lot of their growth. 
And to have such a, a very strong currency is actually probably not the best thing for them. Um, so the idea that, you know, the world's tightening and they're loosening, specifically the U.S. is tightening and they're loosening would actually probably help their currency situation, e.g. the currency would become weaker and make their exports more attractive. But the other thing that I'd th- say is I would not at all listen to anything President Xi Jinping says about anything. He is the leader of a totalitarian regime. And um, I think we should be very, very wary of of um, you know taking what he says at face value. Sorry, forgive that <laughs> little you're, editorial. You're now never allowed to enter China again after that <laughs> well, spiel. I've been there. It was beautiful. I don't have to go back. <laughs> uh, so I so who so who's left to ban rich then? So the <laughs> Chinese, the Canadians, the Brits the got Portuguese. kicked out of Argentina <laughs> uh, or Portugal. Um, so I want to kind of take that all because I think that, you know some of the, the listeners here. Um, you're going to be like, okay, well, like what, what does this mean for Canada? Or like, what does this mean for Canadians? Like every, on our day-to-day lives. And so, because I think we've talked about this on the, on the show and I'm curious to hear what your, what your updated views are. Um, I think most of us have been in the view that the BOC, for example, with all we just talked about, we were in the view that, you know, probably two to three rate hikes before they kind of get stomped out. Um, has your guys's view changed? I mean, all I can say is my view hasn't really changed. Again, I think it could should, could could it be four rate hikes? Sure, uh, that that's my my current view. I just think like there's way too much leverage and debt in, in the uh, in the system. But again, I'm kind of curious to hear your guys's framework. If that's changed, if you guys have gotten you know super hawkish with uh, with you know along with the rest of the big bank economists there. I'll, I'll go first. Um, I have to make one more comment on China, but to answer this question first, um, it, it hasn't changed. Everyone's going to start raising rates and, and they'll raise them until they're not able to anymore. And what will happen to uh, stop them from raising rates? Will, will, again, will be a, a financial accident, whether you know equity is coming off 20, 25, 30% or you know, bank funding stress overseas or, or something like that. So how many will they get? I, again, I I think before we ballparked three to four, maybe five. We'll, we'll see where, where we go with it. They are going to start raising rates. Like they're absolutely going to start doing that. Uh, but they will not get to that. You know, is it nine hikes? No, no, uh, eight, eight hikes, right? Eight, eight hikes. I mean, That's- like. Yeah, I mean, Scotia is now calling like in a bunch of them. Like Scotia is the most hawkish, but Scotia is now calling for seven uh, by the end of this year. So, uh, Rich. So the so the longer they yeah the longer they continue to raise rates because what they'll do they'll raise rates and they look around and nothing is okay everything everything is staying together here and then you go another six weeks at the next meeting it's okay let's do another one you you do it again. And then another six weeks and, you know, they'll, they'll keep doing that until, you know, they're, they're told that they have to stop raising rates. That's, that's what's going to happen. Um, you know, if they, if they had a choice, like they would bring it all the way up to two to 3%. And that's what they would want. They will not get that far like that. That ain't going to happen. Rich. Yeah. So I, I mean, I, I agree with Keith and I just want to clarify my position here. I, it's not that I don't think they're going to raise rates. I'm, I guess I'm qualifying my position. So forgive me for backpedaling a tiny bit. It's not that I don't think that it's impossible that they raise rates in Jan. 
not to belabor this point. I just think that they've exposed themselves as like fickle, you know, um, as fickle and feckless. And I don't think, and so until they've changed their, until they prove me otherwise, I'm going to just, they've shown us who they are and we should believe them. So that's on that thing. Um, as far as like two or three or four, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm exactly the same. I agree with Keith, you know, we, you know, we, we, we should try to gin up some controversy here. So maybe we can, we can, we can change the subject, but I think it, they're going to, the U S is going to raise rates and, um, eventually they'll squawk as they always do when the markets tank. So, <laughs> so by the way, here, yeah. so back to China, what's going to happen next in China? Um, uh, my view on China is different than rich. I, I think this guy's doing a lot of trouble, um, that they're trying to maintain the, the peg that they use, uh, that try to create confidence in the domestic economy because the number one risk that the Chinese economy has is that domestic money leaves and it's already leaving. It's leaving all day long. That's why housing is going up across Canada and the US and, and elsewhere. Uh, I know for a fact money is just flowing out of China through Hong Kong and it's you know going out to the rest of the world. And the Hong Kong banking system is, is you know stretched to the max as well. But here's, here's something uh, that everyone can write down in the notebook, and you're going to see this data point come out at some time over the next you know, number of weeks or something like that. And uh, it's going to be interpreted incorrectly. So what's going to happen is you're going to see the Chinese are selling their treasury bills or their U.S. treasury bonds. And everyone's it's going to be interpreted as uh, this just shows that the Chinese have no confidence in the Americans to run their economy. They think, you know, this is going to happen, that's going to happen, and this is going to happen. They're running for the hills. That proves it. All the commentators on social media that said this, they're going to be jumping up and down and bowing and all that stuff. It, it is 100% incorrect. So what happens with China and their treasury holdings, so the reserves that they're holding, basically, it, it's a function of trade. So as Rich pointed out, they're the biggest exporter in the world. Their biggest trading partner, it is the Americans. And the moment that trade begins to slow, which it should now with, with rates tightening, QE declining, you know, fiscal stimulus slowing and all that stuff. And on a net basis, you know, world or global trade, it, it should slow. So that means there's less U.S. dollars coming into the Chinese system which means there's less U.S. dollars for them to recycle into the treasury market. So it's just, it's just something that, you know, I see it all the time. It's going to happen again, and it's going to be uh, interpreted differently. Uh, if China does indeed, if, if they are the emerging market country that does experience stress, um, it's actually quite good for the Canadian housing market, especially out west in, in Toronto, I assume. Uh, because again, you're going to see a lot of, a lot of Chinese money again getting out of that country and money has to go somewhere. Like it just doesn't disappear like in, in, in midair. And it's probably going to land up in, in Steve's pocket, I guess it's with what, no, his, would, what he would, does on the weekends. Right. Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't mind chiming in on that. I mean, just because I, I, I get this a lot, like people in Vancouver, everyone's always looking for like the scapegoat. And I will say about this cycle in particular, I really have not seen much Chinese money very little on a relative basis, uh, especially compared back to 2015-16. And again, I I don't know. I I suspect it's probably because a lot of the Chinese are actually like mandated and locked into their homes back home. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. They can't get on a plane with a briefcase full of cash. Seriously. 
Yeah, like they're literally stuck there. So like if you look at it's just you just that and that's why like in Vancouver, particularly like the high end luxury housing market, like it hasn't moved. It's kind of slow. And like so what you're seeing is it's only these little entry level price points that are really ramping up. We're all sort of like the locals are sort of competing against each other. So again, maybe that will change as Keith mentioned. Uh, but as it stands right now, all I can say is very confidently that the Chinese money in the Vancouver housing market uh, is a tiny fraction uh, of what it has been over the last uh, number of years. Rich, is that it? Oh yeah, no, I want to push back on the China thing. No, I want to. I'm trying not to interrupt you guys. Uh, Time for uh, my nap soon, guys. Come on, don't don't keep me up. I just want to push back on the China thing. So, I mean, I just. I'm no fan of China, but I also think we underestimate a the political will with respect to not letting things um, go badly. And I think it's really important to remember that they have 3.2 trillion U.S. dollars in foreign exchange reserves. And unlike in Canada, where we pretend that the central bank is independent and it's demonstrably not, um, in, in China, there is no pretense and they can do whatever it is that they want with that cash. Um, and so, yes, although I, I, I love that Keith mentioned that there's loads of money leaking, we'll share this chart. It's one of my all-time favorite charts, the net errors and omissions chart. I've talked about it on this pod before, so we'll definitely share that. But, the, you know, what's important to remember is they still have a, a current account balance that's larger than those omissions and errors. They still do get flows. And I think it's to ignore that those, those that $3.2 trillion um, dollars, I think is, is, is a bit unfair, but I mean, more or less, I think Keith are probably closer to the same view than we are apart. You say they have 3.2 trillion us dollars in foreign exchange reserves. Yes, sir. They do. Trillion. If, if I'm wrong, I will, I will, uh, eat a Twinkie on our next YouTube, which I can't think of anything <laughs> worse to eat than a Twinkie. So I, I, I will, I, I will, yeah. No, if I'm wrong about that, Keith, I'll buy you a beer. But um, 3.2 Maybe a donair. Maybe that would. <laughs> that, oh, it's even worse. Okay, I'll yeah. eat a donair. <laughs> do you not, do you do not question the Tom Brady of macro? No, I will, I will eat a donair if I'm, if I'm anywhere close to wrong. Ugh, I could not. Have you had a donair before? Yes, they're disgusting. <laughs> um, so... I mean, yeah, kind of taking the whole sort of framework, uh, you know, putting all the pieces together. So we've got a, you know, as we talked about throughout the show, so you've got, you know, inflation, putting political and social pressure on central bankers. You've got these emerging markets and China, obviously, that, you know, doesn't necessarily want higher rates, but we're probably going to get them regardless. Um, We're seeing, you know, obviously the strength in the housing market. So how does this all filters through? I think I just want to touch on, on, on mortgage rates because people are going to ask now, okay, so we know the rate hikes are coming. They're already kind of, you know, being priced in. It's just a matter of how many we get until something breaks. Uh, And so the question I'm sure for a lot of people is, okay, well, when does housing break? When is the opportunity? And, you know, when do I sell my house? Whatever. Um, The one thing that I can say is, and I'm sure Keith will talk touch on this, but you know, watching the the watching the Canada five year bond yield, uh, so that has been when has been pushing higher. That's now reflected in you know your five year mortgage rate, your fixed term. 
And so, you know, like a five-year mortgage fixed rate at any of the big banks today, you're probably looking, you're, you're about 2.8% today. So keep in mind that got down during the lows of the pandemic, you can get a five-year fix at about 1.5. So now we're up to 2.8. I've always said that that magic number is getting that mortgage rate north of 3%. That's when you start to see um, pressure on the housing market, but it's, you know, it has to be there for a sustained period of time. The only thing right now, which is again, sort of keeping the the fire going on the housing market is that your variable rate, which is uh, over 60% of new mortgage originations are going variable for this reason recently, is that your, your variable rate today is still like 1.4% because the variable rate is attached to the, the prime rate, which is again, influenced by the Bank of Canada's overnight rate. So if that's confusing, just to, to sort of keep it simple, your variable rate is directly influenced by whatever the Bank of Canada does with their interest rate. So if we get even close to what Scotia says, let's say, you know, yeah, let's just say conservatively, you get, let's just say four, four rate hikes from the Bank of Canada that pushes your uh, variable rate up a hundred basis points. So now you're from one, four to about 2.4. So that's when you'll start to see that filter through into the housing market. And you have to keep in mind that most people are on like rate holds. So when you go to the bank, your mortgage broker will, will secure your rate at the lowest rate for usually three to four months. And then that expires and you have to renew at the higher rate. So you have a lot of buyers, in my opinion, when they start to see, and this is kind of counterintuitive, is when they start to see that the Bank of Canada actually begins hiking rates, all they read is they go, all most people do is they go on CBC News and they go, oh, interest rates are going up. I better, I better, I better purchase now because if I don't, my interest rate <laughs> lock will go up and I'll be paying more for on my mortgage. So I better go today. And it's, again, it is counterintuitive because most people that are watching the show are thinking, well, Hey, if you have higher rates, wouldn't that effectively impact, you know, demand in the housing market, slow prices. That's not how most people think in Canada because they don't really understand the, the whole dynamics. They just see rates are going up. I must move now. So I think you probably get one more big push uh, in the housing market before you, you start to see those rate hikes really filter through. I have a, I have a question for you. Again, like this is not my market. So, um, are you are you saying that because you know we all know, as an example, let's just say we're we're one percent sure that the Bank of Canada will raise rates next week. Are you saying the prime rate has yet to move? They won't adjust prime until after it's announced. I'm just trying to understand. No, I think like, I, do my- people have the opportunity to to run the market, like to go in today and get pre-approved, and then? sort of yes. miss or sidestep this uh, potential rate um, hike next week. Is that what happens? Yeah, you know, your prime rate, your prime rate will move up with the BOC. Uh, up before. So, so they yeah, haven't adjusted prime already. No, they have not. That's my understanding. And the discount rate is pretty much the same, right? So it's like the banks will say it's it's prime, which I think is 2.45 <laughs> right now. Exactly. I just checked whatever. it. Yeah, whatever your discount rate is. So I think like right now, like I said, most people are saying, most banks are saying prime minus 1%, which means your over, your variable rate is- No one pays prime, prime anymore. It's always prime minus. Prime rate. minus, yeah. But the banks can say on a risk-adjusted basis, oh, this housing market looks really shaky. Let's, let's remove our discount rate. And so they could hypothetically just go, hey, now we're only offering prime minus 0.5. 
And that could change as well. So long story short is your variable rate is going to go up and that's going to start to follow what's been happening in the five-year fixed rates. So again, when you have these massive moves, like we talked about at the beginning of the show where a townhouse goes up 25% in three months, like if you have a 50 basis point move in your mortgage rate, like it's going to start to suck some of the wind out of the housing market. So there's, there's less money available to, to go after it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, everybody add something else here. Uh, so, you know, again, we talk about the bond market sometimes and some people, maybe they're not watching it as closely as, as we do, but picture, uh, picture, say four different bonds, a bond that matures next week, another one that matures five years from now, another one, 10 years from now, one 30 years from now. And there's a, this, as you get longer with the maturity date, there's a higher interest rate attached to that. So when you link all those together, that's what we call a yield curve. The Canadian mortgage market is mostly on the five-year and shorter period. And you've heard us talk about over the last two weeks how the bond market has been crushed at the long end of the curve. Um, so what I suspect will happen, so here's two contrarian trades that I see right now. Um, Again, I was chatting with a friend yesterday. He said, do you think the U.S. 10-year will reach uh, 2%? And I said, I, I think there's a probably a 25% chance it does. So right now, I, I think there's a probability that like 10-year rates and longer, um, they may be peaking this week. Maybe the price of those bonds have actually troughed and they're starting to recover. All the volatility has been sapped out of it. So, so that, that trade seems to be over there. Um, so really in the Canadian bond market, uh, the, the five-year might may not come down as much, whereas U.S. mortgage rates at the 30-year, they can come down quite a bit from here. And then at the opposite end, when all this is happening, I, I think oil prices may have peaked as well this week. So you get the no opportunity. Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, we, we have that. Uh, again, these are trades that, that we see with different models that, that we use. And, and so forth. But it, again, it's a reminder that when everyone is on one one train or one boat or whatever Rich drives around in all the time. I walk. He's, he walks. <laughs> he has big shoes, by the way, guys. Big shoes. Um, you know, the, these the, those are when you sort of say, okay, it, it's moved a bit too much. So Because again, everyone else saying, hey, rates are going up. Rates are going up. Rates are going up. Um, I think there's a probability that the long end of the curve is, is, is sort of paused right now and it could come back a little bit. So everyone looking to buy a house again, you may not have to panic over the next two weeks. You might get another chance, uh, you know, three to five I, weeks after that. So can, I I think, think, can I just, oh, go ahead. Uh, Steve, yeah, I, I want you to touch in on oil, uh, obviously, because I know you're- fighting you're... words, aren't they? Look at these guys. <laughs> look, the old guy's still awake at like two in the afternoon and, and these young um, guys are- uh... Well, there's oil There's oil, and there's the maturity thing, which I think, uh, but you go ahead, Steve, please, please. No, all I, all I was going to say is in terms of opportunity in the housing market, uh, I don't see that opportunity arising probably until the end of the year. Um, until those, those rate hikes have to filter through into like these mortgage pre-approvals and have, and you have record low inventory. So like, it's just, it's going to take time to filter through. Uh, I think that the bank of Canada, like, as we talked about throughout the show, they'll continue to keep hiking until something breaks. Uh, and so nothing's going to break here in the first three, four months. Like if something's going to break, it's probably, uh, you know, a little bit of a little bit later on towards the end of the year. So that that's my opinion on the housing market. If you're looking for that opportunity, so to speak, it's probably towards the end of the year. 
Uh, but Rich, take it away. I know you're uh, you're chomping the bit here on the oil. Well, oil well, before I get to the oil thing, I think what's really kind of interesting, and I think why I, one of the reasons I absolutely love my job is because I have access to all this wonderful, wonderful data. And it's not only um, the mortgage market that's tied to the front end of the curve. Um, nearly all of the new debt issuance that our dear, be- dearly beloved finance minister chose to issue was in the short term, on the short end of the curve. So um, instead of, so when the government of the Bank of Canada lowered interest rates and obviously did all this MMT to suppress rates, to keep rates low, um, oh, it's not technically MMT, but anyway. So when the government of Bank of Canada lowered rates, um, the government of Canada, in their infinite wisdom, issued shitloads of debt. And instead of issuing debt really far out the curve, which at the time would have been really, really sensible, right? You're saying, well, we're going to goose the, the economy. We're going to create lots of inflation. Let's fuck over the bondholders really, really far out. But instead, they issued nearly all of the debt. And I will prove this in a chart. They will issue, They issued all of their, their uh, nearly all the issuance, probably 60, 70% or whatever the issuance was in the front end of the curve. So five years and less. And so what does that mean? It means when they have to roll over the debt in a one, one year, three years, five years, that instead of rolling, they're going to have to roll it over at a much, much, much higher um interest rate that's assuming that the world doesn't go into deflation and uh, ultimately revolution but let's just assume things are gonna in the, you know things go okay over the next few years interest rates will be higher than they are today and when the government of canada has to roll over all of the ish, the debt that's been issued over the last two years it's at the front end of the curve so i'll be happy to share that chart but that was uh, just a little delicious um piece of information that really kind of kind of uh turns me on i love doing that kind of stuff as far as oil is concerned i just oh, think it's canadian wait. yep go for Rich. it well 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 what what is do you have the uh, canadian federal debt maturity i i do uh, but i can't I, I sorry this sound this is shit radio may, but i can't pull can it up share, quickly yeah like maybe this. we can share that with everyone with, with oh definitely it, it'd be really good for people to visualize hey we have yeah. this much debt and because you know it, it's really important to see when, when these debt bubbles are coming up and, so I don't have uh, the maturity. I don't have the exact maturity, although we can definitely look that up. What I do have is the issuance by maturity and how that's changed over the last, let's say, 20 years or however long the series goes for. And so what you can see is, and you can, and what's amazing about this chart, which I'll show, is the bond issuance is usually quite far out the curve. And obviously, as time goes on, a 10-year bond turns into a nine-year bond, which turns into an eight, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But what the this finance team did was they issued a crap load of debt at the front end of the curve, which is the twos and threes and fives, which is already now going up, right? So it's just such I, a fucking I have, embarrassment. I have, a, I have a question. I have a question on that. Go for it. And you not just make the argument like, okay, if if you're like just like a, a household, can you not just look at that and be like, well you know, the public sector, the government sector is completely screwed that they're going to have to try to roll all this debt. And, and like what the is is not the release valve, just the currency, like, or inflation. Right. Uh, yeah. Well, there's another thing to consider as well. Um, so from a very high end, we call it an aggregate level around the world. Aggregate global savings, it's its enormous. It's still enough money yeah. to absorb all this debt issuance. Sure. So, I mean, one one thing, um, you know, in defense of, you know, all the Finmans, you know, when they're 
so other treasury departments and ministers of finance, when, when they're issuing debt, you know, they'd say, well, you know, that's what the market is paying for it, you know, in, in which, you know, we, we would, you know, Rich would reply and say, well, Bank of Canada is actually buying a lot of it. But it's the fact still remains that the amount of money in retirement plans, whether it's defined benefit plans or defined contribution plans, RSPs, and a lot of people, listeners here, if you're money is going into a, a target date fund, uh, you should clearly call someone who can tell you <laughs> some of the risk you might have that you may not be aware of. Uh, but the point is, though, that there's a lot of money that automatically flows into the bond market, and they're, they're mopping this up. But there does come a point, you know, that that tipping point, because, you know, because again, what, what's the surplus going to be this year, Steve? Zero. Be- <laughs> I don't know what the that's deficit's going to be this year. The I don't deficit. know how the numbers. <laughs> Hilarious. I want to wake them up. Yeah. But, but again, though, that's the point, right? No one is running a surplus. And the moment they do, you know, everyone runs in the room with their hands out. Oh, we got a surplus. Let's, let's spend it. Uh, you know, there's increasingly more debt all the time. And uh, the, the point Rich is making, which a lot of people don't sort of see, is that, you know, they're, they're borrowing an extra $60 billion this year, whatever the number is. But coming right behind that, they might have another... I'm going to guess 300 billion that that's maturing as well at, at the same time. And it could be at the exact moment in time when the bank of Canada is no longer doing their, their bond buying program or quantitative easing. And then when the Americans are reducing theirs and I, I don't think that the Europeans can do it, but on an aggregate level, if more countries are doing that, you know, we have this thing called bootstrapping. In, in, in the yield curve market, really, where one bond is priced off another bond, which is priced off another bond. The, the, there is the real opportunity here, you know, for rates to get out of control. And uh, this, I love this stuff. We can talk about it all, all day. So can I just add one, two more things? One is I just want to say this is not Monday morning quarterbacking. I know a lot of the times we like criticize policymakers for decisions after the fact, blah, blah, blah. It was clear at the time, and if you go back and look at, I'm not even going to mention the guy's name, but he doesn't deserve a plug, but there was loads of people in question, in Prime Minister's question time, who were saying, this is, what are you doing? This is not a good idea. And so, um, to his credit, he's the one who got me sniffing around there, and you can see the data is clear, and I'll be happy to share it. The other thing on the savings, right, I know this is getting a little bit technical, but what's so delicious about this whole bond issue and stuff and the savings is that we're about enter, we're entering the period where baby boomers like Keith are about to retire and they're going to stop generating lots of millions and millions and millions of dollars of income and starting drawing on those savings. And so maybe that's a conversation for a different pod. But, you know, when we look down the road at five, 10 years from now, when you have that savings being consumed and drawn down, it's going to be interesting whether or not all this debt can be um, sort of... Um, yeah, like sort of resold rolled, to that refinance. Re- rolled, rolled, sorry, refinance basically. Yeah, thank you. Sorry, I gobbled that, but anyways. absorbed. But can we talk but about oil. But, <laughs> but no, this is, this, is the whole, this is the whole thing that we've been talking about. Like that, you literally just like summarized everything that we've been talking about, which is why like we're, we keep saying, okay, yeah, it's like two, three, maybe four rate hikes. Okay, great. Even if you get to like seven this year, like Scotia's bank is saying, it's like. You're, gonna, you're basically forced. Where 
given the demographics and the debt that has to be rolled, like you're basically forced to go back and hit control P and start printing again. But that's, so this is, so this is, you know, if you subscribe to my note, you'll know that I've been on this train for a long, long time, which is, this is why I think inflation is not something they're fighting. Inflation is the policy stance. The only way you were asking about how did this, how does the circle get squared? Is it the currency? I think, you know, Canada's currency is tied to oil. We can skip that. But the issue is, and everyone's doing the same sort of shit. So it's, you know, you're all fighting against one another. But to me, the only way any of this debt gets paid in inverted commas is it doesn't. It's inflated away. And so you have, so whether or not there's a rate hike today and tomorrow and they pull back and they go forward and they pull back, whatever, it's irrelevant. Interest rates are materially below the rate of inflation, however you define it. And so if you sustain that process for a long, long time, the real value of your debt goes down and guess, and people get paid. And so that's how the circle is squared. I mean, that's, that's my view. That I, that's, how, that's coloring all of my asset allocation decisions. I'm happy to share notes I've written about it and stuff, but I don't know if you guys... Keith, I, I actually want to just plug you here for a second because um, I think Rich just summarized it uh, magnificently. So to kind of wrap this up, uh, Keith, do you have any comments on that? Like as, as Rich is kind of saying, right? Like the debt will be quote unquote paid, but it'll be paid back in this debased currency where, yeah, okay, we paid it back in nominal terms, but like, yeah, you got it paid back in like something, you know, a loaf of bread's 10 bucks kind of thing and whatever. Um, <laughs> Do you, do you have any comments on like, again, like from the portfolio side? Cause like when I think, when I hear Rich say that, all I can think about is like, you know, one of my close family members, that's like a school teacher that's in like, or like my brother that works for like the government. And it's like, yeah, you've got this like defined pension, but like, what is the value of that? Like, yes, I know it's indexed to inflation, but like, is CPI a really accurate measurement? Like, do you have any comments on that, Keith? Like, I mean, for, in terms of like these defined pensions and and what 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 the actual like value of them is? Because like everybody I know like that has a pension just like assumes it's going to be there, assumes it's going to be worth what they say it's going to be worth, and that they'll be able to re- you know retire at fifty five and and it will sustain them. Yeah. Um, so there are two kinds of pension plans in the world. There are defined benefit plans, and those are the ones where you pay in your money every pay, every paycheck, and you know when you turn fifty-five or sixty-five, you're going to get, say, seventy percent of your salary or fifty percent of your salary or, or something like that. Uh, that's where everyone says, "Oh, you don't ever worry about your pension plan." If you open up every single defined pension plan, you look at the assets that are in there because you know their investment managers have to invest it. I would have a very good guess that most of these plans have anywhere from say 30 to 45% in the bond market. That that's where it is. And that is, and then the rest is in the stock market, uh, real assets, and you know, a number of different things. And and typically that part of the portfolio, like the, the risky market, like equities, stuff like that, you know, that's considered to be risky and volatile. And other stuff is considered to be, hey, safe and secure and everything. 
I would argue it's been flipped on its head because the moment we get this crisis in the bond market that, that's going to come up, uh, again, you get permanent losses. So all these defined benefit plans that have 30 to 45% in, in the bond market, uh, there is the opportunity there for that part of the portfolio to have permanent losses. Because remember, when the stock market drops 25%, it, it does recover. There's always residual value in, in the stock market. If you get a loss in the bond market, uh, it, it could be a permanent 15% write down or you know whatever number you want to go with. And then all of a sudden you realize, hey, the pension plan itself doesn't have enough assets to pay out all the payments into the future. Now that's what pension, now, now we're getting you know some really interesting conversations. But the point is uh, you might, if you're a member of these pension plans, you might hear the term that your plan is fully funded or it's in a deficit. Um, it, again, what I strongly encourage you to to ask some questions and like the main one is what is the expected rate of return, you know, for, for the plan. And uh, no, you, you'll be shocked at, at a lot of these things, uh, but sort of coming back with the whole thing with the bond market um, in Canada specifically, and you guys may not remember this cause it was, you know, 20 years ago almost. Um, I don't know what you guys were doing then, but back in the early O's, the Canadian dollar got down to like the low sixties. So I remember people then were saying, oh my God, it's going to 50 cents, it's going to 25 cents. You know, it, it was dropping like a stone. And um, at that time, the reason for that happening was because of all the debt problems that we had in Canada. We had this in incredible amount of debt. We were running deficits. We had to raise taxes, cut spending and, and all that stuff. And uh, a lot of that started to happen. Um, and at the same time, energy markets started to take off as well, commodity markets. So that that really helped. Globalization was was ramping up. So so there, a lot of uh, tailwinds kicked in to help pull Canada out of that. The challenge today is that we're right back to that same moment in time where we had this big debt problem. We're we're spending way too much money. Um, it's going to be pretty tough to hike uh, tax rates from here because we're already taxed pretty high. And, and this is where we jump in the conversation. You know, the, the Irish have the same problem. The French have the same problem. The Italians, the Americans, you know, everyone in the world is at this exact same moment in time. And, and that's where the whole bond market, you know, start to do really funny things, you know, which then creates the opportunity for other markets to go a lot higher. So we are incredibly, we are rationally exuberant about what might come up here in the future. Well, I think we'll, does that make we'll, sense to anyone or no? Rich is laughing. I think, I think you did. I th I'm laughing because, you know, it's funny. You and I often we disagree about some detail stuff, but as what you just lay out is sort of I'm laughing because it's kind of it's just all it's like all, it's obvious to the point where I'm like worried about, you know, maybe we're wrong. But I think you did such a really good job explaining it, frankly. That's why I'm smiling. Well, the the. the the irony here right now is that policy policymakers all around the world, not just Canadians, they've created this environment where older people, they've always been told to believe that the bond market is, is safe. When you get old, hit retirement, buy bonds and, and GICs, and you'll never have to worry about anything. And however, if you take a really long-term look at, especially the interest rate market, this is the exact worst. I have a story for you. Here we go. 1982. I'm chatting with not back then. I was I was before the internet, kids. <laughs> it was yeah, it was before the internet. It was before TV. We had one TV station. 
Um, However, but I was chatting with a guy that was managing money back then. And he told me, he said, he said Keith, uh, the broker called him to buy a uh, Ford Motor Company bond that was yielding, I think it was like 16%, something like that. And he, he and uh, this guy said, he said, we wouldn't buy it. He said, this broker could not sell that bond anyone on the street. Nobody wanted to buy a 16% yielding bond. And that was actually the, you know, the, the low point of the bond market. Now, here we are today, everyone, including pension funds, they're tripping up all themselves to buy a bond that has to say a 1% yield. Or get ready for this, everyone. If you're in Europe, these bond managers are buying bonds that have a negative yield. So they're guaranteed to lose money. And I know any consultants listening are going to say, well, they're doing this, you know, for, you know, liability asset and matching and, and stuff and like spread that. Spread matching, yeah. Yeah, but however, but when, again, once you get permanent losses in the bond market, you know, all that consulting stuff goes out the window. You're going to get fired. If you're a consultant, rethink what you're, you're thinking here, guys. Again, hey. like it, it's, it's, it's so easy to see what, what we're faced with. Well, I mean, I think just to kind of summarize, right? I mean, I think this, uh, like in Canada, everybody's kind of got their, their blinders on as a sleep at the wheel. I mean, if we, all we have to do is look at the policymakers that are, you know, running the show. I mean, we talked about the Bank of Canada has been saying inflation has been transitory. How they were saying, they've been saying for the last 18 months that inf inflation in the housing market was transitory, that it was just pandemic induced activity. Um, you know, and then, Again, not to, to ramble on, but like this week, right? Like if you look at Canada, we, what do we have? We've got a supply chain crisis. We've got high inflation, 30-year high. And what does the government decide to do? Oh, let's close the border to unvaccinated truckers. Like that's not how you fix a supply chain or inflation problem. But these are the kind of people that are running the country. So uh, as to Keith's, to Keith's point, uh, you know, same thing, you know, the, sometimes the 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 higher bees that, uh, you know, are running your portfolio, uh, you know, you always have to ask questions, do your own due diligence. And, you know, that's really what the show is all about is just, you know, we wanted to put together a podcast, uh, having a conversation, uh, about macroeconomics and how, how it impacts, you know, Canadians day-to-day -day lives as, as sort of an alternative, uh, news source because I don't think this conversation is is out there, um, and I think it's an extremely important conversation because everybody works you know hard in Canada and everybody wants to protect uh, that hard earned capital and, and and you know create a store of value long term so you can have a proper retirement. So uh, as always, you know we'll wrap it up there. We we certainly appreciate the ongoing support. As One more prediction. Too. One more prediction before we go. <laughs> San Francisco 24, Green Bay 13. <laughs> Big 49ers fan. You heard it there first. Keith Dicker, you can take that to the bookie. Um, but yeah, appreciate the support. If you can share this episode again with one person, that's all we ask. Text them the link to the Spotify or Apple, Tune, Apple iTunes podcast. Share it with one person. Let's grow this community. Um, and we'll see you next week.